just to briefly recapitulate what we have already heard in this sutta, in this discourse. Potapada, who is a wanderer from a different sect, different persuasion, nevertheless is very interested in what the Buddha has to say. So he's asking him about a very profound matter. He's asking him about the extinction of higher consciousness. And he gives four different ways that people talk about it. Some people talk about it that there's no cause or condition for perception to arise and cease. Some people say that perception is the self and uh, that sometimes comes and sometimes goes. And some people think it's uh, ascetics and Brahmins that make your perception come and go. And then others think that it might be actually devas that do it, or gods. And uh, so he wants to know whether um, the Buddha agrees with any of these opinions. And the Buddha says nothing. He doesn't agree or disagree at all. What he says is that it is due to training. He says it's due to training. Some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. And then he starts out with the path of training. And he makes no reference at all to the question until much later. First, the path of training. And this is how he often answers questions. Not exactly what is being asked, but that which he thinks the questioner should know. And out of that, we have a lot of discourses. And most of them give us a whole pathway of what training means, training towards higher consciousness and training towards the total loss of all dukkha. So the first step in this training, which we heard yesterday, is morality. The kind of behavior which is actually called Aryan morality, noble morality. The kind of behavior which is suitable for monastics and also suitable for lay people when they want to do more intensive practice. So it is uh, more of a renunciation than just the five precepts. Taking on rules of behavior is renunciation. As, for instance, we can see in the third precept, which changes in the higher or noble morality to celibacy. That's renunciation. And not going to shows. And all the uh, points that we discussed yesterday, all that is more renouncing of the things that people usually do like adorning themselves 
with um, um, makeup or jewelry or whatever it may be. In those days, by the way, um, men also uh, wore some makeup and quite often jewelry, which is not so uncommon today either. So it doesn't only refer to women. It refers to everybody. And uh, that now, having pronounced all these steps of morality, the Buddha says, then a person who is perfected in that sees no danger from any side. To be perfect in all those steps takes training. One has to work at it. And it's not a good idea to think that it is imposed on one from outside. One needs to impose it on oneself for the simple reason that one realizes that if one conquers one's own instinct and impulses, one can then also conquer the, all the illusions which make dukkha for us. So it is a, a step towards the final goal. Every one of these steps are designed that way. Seeing no danger from any side obviously brings with it a feeling of security. One feels at ease. One knows one doesn't have to worry about anything that has been done wrong by oneself. One has no feelings of guilt. One has no feelings of omission or commission. One doesn't feel that there's any way anybody can blame one. And so one feels very much at ease. There's a simile given here. And then, who is perfected in morality sees no danger from any side owing to his being restrained by morality. Just as the duly anointed Katya king, having conquered his enemies, by that very fact sees no danger from any side, so on account of his morality the person sees no danger anywhere. He experiences in himself the blameless bliss that comes from maintaining this noble morality. In this way, he's perfected in morality. The word bliss here is, um, is a word which is supposed to show inner joy. And it's not the meditative bliss, which we'll hear about later and which we have already discussed to some extent in the last week, but it is a kind of um, joy within which brings a contentment. There's, if one feels oneself blameless and if one feels that one has no danger from one's passions, one feels at ease. And that's what's being um, said here. 
And now comes the next step. And the Buddha has no reference to the question yet, the question of the extinction of higher consciousness. In fact, the way he's doing it shows quite clearly that he doesn't think that without knowing all those first steps, Potapada would even understand the answer. He has to be told all these other steps first. So the next thing is he guards the sense doors. Now there's a um, there are many aspects of that, and I'll read out what the Buddha said, and then I'll explain it. How is one a guardian of the sense doors? On seeing a visible object with the eye, one does not grasp at its major signs or secondary characteristics, because greed and sorrow, evil unskilled states, would overwhelm one if one dwelt, leaving this eye faculty unguarded. So one practices guarding it, protects the eye faculty, develops restraint, restraint of the eye faculty. And then the same is said about the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the thinking. Then one experiences within oneself the blameless bliss that comes from maintaining this noble guarding of the faculties. In this way, one is a guardian of the sense doors. This is most of the time totally misunderstood and practiced wrongly. And what is understood by guarding the sense doors is not to look, not to hear, not to taste, not to touch. Impossible. Our senses are there. We've got to look, to hear, to taste, to touch, to smell. And our mind refuses not to think, as we very well know. So that kind of practice is impossible, and yet it's being done and being taught. Obviously, if one doesn't look at something, one can't get perturbed by it. But how can we manage that, particularly in ordinary, everyday life? One really needs to know what is being said here and particularly if one has taken on precepts. One does not grasp at the major signs or secondary characteristics. And what that actually entails means that while the eye sees, it does not have any explanation. It only sees color, and shape. The rest all takes place in the mind, every bit of it. So, let's assume we like chocolate, and it's not the right time to eat. What does the eye see if there's chocolate around? It sees the shape of it and the brown color. And then the mind says, that's chocolate, tastes delicious. I want it. Totally unnecessary. 
if we know that we're not going to grasp at the signs and characteristics, then we're going to stop the mind from doing that. In fact, we can practice that quite easily with anything that we either like very much or dislike very much. Just pick anything and then watch the mind reacting to what you see or hear. Those are the two strongest, naturally also tasting when one is eating. But outside of eating, seeing and hearing are the strongest sense contacts. So become aware of how the mind tells the story. It's impossible for the eye to tell the story. It's impossible for the ear to tell the story. The ear can hear sound. That's all. So then it hears sound. And let's say it hears the sound of a truck. And so the mind says, truck. And then it says, very noisy, most unpleasant. No wonder I cannot, cannot meditate. That's all in the mind. It's a dig dislike in the mind. It has nothing to do with the sound itself. The sound is just sound. And what we see is just color and shape. That's all it is. Now, when one has undertaken the precept of celibacy, there is very often the idea and it's also taught that way, that one shouldn't look, if one is a male, at women. Or vice versa, if one is a female, one shouldn't look at men. Now, how is anybody going to do that? It's just not possible. And I have met monks who have tried. It's an impossible relationship that ensues. You talk to somebody who isn't looking at you deliberately. makes any kind of relationship extremely difficult. And it's not what is meant. All you see is the shape and the color. And the mind says, female or woman, stop, finish. That's it. No more. Whatever else the mind says gives rise to greed or maybe hate, if so is the situation. Mostly greed, of course. And we can practice that. That's possible to practice. In fact, if we do, it makes life very easy. For instance, if one goes shopping, and one has a nice little shopping list which says all the things that are really needed. And then one's eye falls on the immense array of other things which are available, beautifully packaged, on special. <laughs> and immediately the mind becomes interested and buys far more than what was needed. Not only that, some people actually go out shopping in order to find things that look attractive and then buy them as a sort of a hobby 
or a, a Saturday outing, if they have the money for it. If we are easily swayed by what we see, the best thing to do is to recognize the sense contact and stop the mind at the perception, namely the labeling. The mind has a hard time being stopped before that. But if we see a person, or we think of a person, even worse, we think of a person that we have either hate or greed for, dislike intensely, or want to have around intensely. Thinking of the person, stopping at the label, person or friend or male or female. It's a label. That's all. And nothing further. Because the rest is then our desire. And that's guarding our sense doors. You see, our senses are our survival system. It's much easier to survive when we can see and hear than if we were blind or deaf. They're really there for us to help us survive. All of them. But human beings have the idea that our senses are there in order to provide us with pleasure. And we use them in that way and become irate when they don't provide pleasure and blame that which was the trigger. For instance, another person. Another person does not provide pleasure. We dislike that other person. So we blame the other person. It has nothing to do with the other person. The other person is made up of the four elements, has the same senses that we have, tries to be happy and be have peace. There's nothing in that other person that is providing displeasure. It's all in our own mind. And by the same token, exactly the same thing when we think there is a person that would provide pleasure for us. Made up of the four elements, the same senses, the same limbs that we have and looking for happiness. There's no reason to assume or to continue wanting pleasure if that is not at the moment the right thing to do. All we have to do is see person, that's all. A person. Nothing other than that. And there are so many persons in this world why does this one arouse the pleasure or displeasure syndrome nothing to say that that should be so if we guard our senses we're guarding our passions when we're guarding our passions life becomes far more equanimous even we don't have that situation of the constant up and down, up when we're getting it, down 
when we're not getting it, whatever it is we want. This kind of inner feeling of always wanting to have that which is just escaping us. None of that which is to be had in the world, anywhere, under any circumstances, can bring fulfillment. Nothing. There is no such thing in the world that can bring fulfillment. All of what we can have in the world are sense contacts. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking. And all of them are short-lived. And have to be renewed over and over again. And to renew them takes time and energy and again, it's not the sense contact that satisfies. It is the mind that makes something out of it. So, the guarding of the senses is one of the most important things we can do if we want to lead a peaceful, harmonious life and not get constantly bothered by things we would like to have and can't have or things we are having and wouldn't like to have. Because those are the only two causes for dukkha. There aren't any others. Either we want it and haven't got it, or we've got it and don't want it. That's all there is to it. And if we watch our sense contexts and don't go past the labeling, we have a very good chance of being at ease. The minute we start beyond that, the mind is a magician. It can put a magic story into anything and will constantly be tempted. There was mentioned here Mara, the tempter. Mara is constantly with us and if we give him, her, it, an opening, it will undoubtedly give us difficulties. Temptations are unnecessary. We need to overcome them, but we don't even have to have them if we stop before they start. And that means guarding the senses. Now, the Buddha does not stop at that and gets on to answering this question that he's being asked. He's got a lot more to say that one needs to practice before it, he gets on to meditation. And then when he gets on to meditation, he eventually gets on to the extinction of higher consciousness. The next thing he has to say is mindfulness. This is the usual progression in many of the discourses. Morality, guarding sense source, mindfulness. Mindfulness and clear comprehension. They are very often partners. They're mentioned together. Sati is mindfulness. Sampanyanya, clear comprehension. And I'll read what it says here. 
how is one accomplished in mindfulness and clear comprehension? One acts with clear comprehension in going forth and back, in looking ahead or behind, in bending and stretching, in wearing the robe, in carrying the bowl, in eating, drinking, chewing and swallowing, in evacuating and urinating, in walking, standing, sitting, lying down, in waking, in speaking and in keeping silent, one acts with clear comprehension. In this way, one is accomplished in mindfulness and clear comprehension. We have discussed mindfulness at great length during the last week. I'll just repeat briefly the main aspects of mindfulness. As I said, in Pali it's called sati, S-A-T-I, and watching the breath is called anapanasati, mindfulness of in-breath, out-breath, which is the method which will get one to concentration. Mindfulness has four foundations, four aspects. The body, the emotions, one's moods, and the content of thought. Now, here, what is mentioned here is body. All of the things which are enumerated here to be mindful of are all concerned with the body. Looking ahead, looking behind, walking, standing, sitting, lying down. All body. And body mindfulness takes pride of place. So I'd like to remind you, again, about being mindful outside of meditation. Watching the body. Knowing what you're doing with the body. Walking, standing, sitting, lying down, urinating, evacuating, chewing, swallowing, all the things that the body does, there are so many things. Getting dressed, getting undressed, reaching out, stretching, bending. If we're mindful of the body, first of all, we have the advantage of keeping the mind in its place and not allowing it to go discursively from here to there. Doing that outside of meditation makes it possible to get concentrated in meditation. If there is no mindfulness outside of meditation, there is no meditation. If there is a little mindfulness outside of meditation, there is a little meditation. The two go hand in hand. Watching with mindfulness what the body is doing also purifies. There's no way we can be upset or angry or greedy if we're actually watching what we're doing. It takes pride of place and is mentioned by the Buddha over and over again. Using the body for one's mindfulness object. First of all, it's easy because we can see it, we can touch it. And there's so many movements. So we don't have to search for anything. It's there as a mindfulness object. If one practices it, 
one realizes in a very short time the peacefulness which arises out of it and the lack of agitation and aggravation because how can one be agitated or aggravated or wanting or disliking when one is watching what's happening secondly we learn to be in this moment and eventually we might learn from that that there is no other moment that to be in this moment means actually eternity what we usually do we make a, a boundary between the past moment the present one and the next one so there's always three and yet we can only experience one the other two are mind made so they have no reality they are fantasy and yet everybody does it but in reality if we learn to be mindful we also learn from it that there is that which is happening and nothing else that is actually taking place and it's taking place in continuation so every moment depicts eternity if we don't make a boundary between moments most people live either in the past or in the future or in both that's most common living in both if we do meditation is also extremely difficult because meditation is now not in the past and not in the future it can only happen now so that's the second advantage of mindfulness or the third I should say because the second was the purification the third one is this one being in the now if strong emotions come up or the thinking takes over we can use either one as a mindfulness object and we can recognize whether it's wholesome or unwholesome and substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome if an emotion comes up we don't have to believe it we can go back to its source which is undoubtedly sense contact check it out it's most interesting there could be sense contact of thinking but that is all it can be so that arises and it becomes unwholesome we substitute the same with the content of the thought if we recognize it to be wholesome we take notice and as it subsides we go back to the body if it's unwholesome we try to substitute as quickly as we can the less time we allow for the unwholesome to stay with us the less chances there are of getting deep ruts of negativity in the mind the same with greed which of course we also consider unwholesome the less chance we give it the easier it is to get out of it 
And greed is an overall word for wanting, and hate is an overall word for not wanting. It doesn't have to be violent hate. It can just be mild dislike. <coughs> I did not speak during the past week about the third foundation of mindfulness, moods. They too are an extremely important object of attention. If we catch the unwholesome mood before it develops into thinking or emotion, it's a much easier task to substitute. Some people have a constant negative mood and find it very difficult to get themselves out of that. Other people, most of them, have sometimes this and sometimes that, sometimes negative, sometimes positive. And then there are those that have more positive moods. It's very important to check oneself for the underlying mood within one. And if one finds that the underlying mood is one, which is either resentment or disgust or dislike, and then results in negative thinking and negative emotions, and that can be very strong, one can try to tackle the mood, knowing that it's nothing but a mood. It has no personal significance. Nothing that we have or think or do has any personal significance. It's all just happening. And we don't have to retain it if it's detrimental to our own happiness. We don't have to retain the thought content or the emotion or the mood which is detrimental to happiness. The more happiness we ourselves have, the more happiness we can give to others. We cannot give what we haven't got. It's utterly impossible. Why people think they can is a mystery. If we haven't got inner happiness, how can we give happiness to anyone? So, those are the four foundations body, emotion, mood, content of thought. Body takes pride of place and should never be forgotten. That we pay attention to it. Mindfulness means bear attention. It's not judgmental, it's bear attention. But clear comprehension knows whether it's unwholesome or an unwholesome emotion or thought process. Or mood, and that clear comprehension is then it has the ability to substitute. We can clearly comprehend. All of us have more than sufficient wisdom to do that. We also have, of course, all the human foibles, but we don't have to keep them. They are always creators of unhappiness, creators of worry, restlessness and agitation. What for? We don't need them. So we have 
sufficient wisdom to clearly comprehend what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. And we are learning to substitute in meditation every discursive thought we need to substitute with attention to the meditation subject. So we can substitute. We don't have to retain. The only reason people retain their negativities is because they justify them and put the blame outside of themselves. It does not conducive to happiness. It's only justification. So if we have this opportunity here of the inner journey, of seeing ourselves the way we really are and not the way we would like to appear in society or we would like to appear to others, but just see ourselves plainly the way we really are, we can change it. And that will bring about a great relief like letting go of a burden. Even just being mindful lets go of a great burden, the burden of discursive thinking, and the burden of reacting. When we're not mindful, we're constantly reacting. And that's a great burden. It needs mind energy, and it's judgmental and often critical. With mindfulness, that can't happen. Clear comprehension has another aspect to it, which is not mentioned here, but I'll explain it. Now, I said it is a companion for mindfulness. Mindfulness takes pride of place. If we don't have mindfulness, we don't have clear comprehension either. We can't have that without the other. So, mindfulness first. Watching one step. Literally and figuratively. Watching one step under all circumstances. It's the best thing we can do for ourselves. Obviously, we sometimes forget, no doubt about it. But the minute we remember, we're back on track. As a companion to mindfulness, clear comprehension has four aspects. The first one is becoming aware of what one wants to say or do and investigating whether that has a beneficial purpose, what one is intending to say or do. If one agrees that it has a beneficial purpose, not a self-centered purpose, Self-centered purposes are not usually beneficial. Not um, a purpose which is self-cherishing, but is it beneficial on a level where everybody would agree that it is beneficial? Then the next step is to ascertain whether what one has in mind to say or do, whether we know and are going to use the most skillful means, whether we actually have skillful means on hand to do whatever it is that we have decided to do or say whatever it is that we have decided to say. 
check the means. Can they be more skillful? And then the third step is, is the purpose and are the means within the Dhamma? In other words, we could say, would the Buddha approve? Now, obviously, we don't know him personally, but I think we have heard enough already to know what he would approve of and what he wouldn't. So we check our purpose and we check the means against that which we know about the teaching. Primarily, is it within the precepts? Primarily, is it within loving kindness and compassion? Is it um, on a level of producing happiness? And so on. Mainly, is it directed towards the goal? The goal of losing all dukkha eventually. Has it that direction? This is an important consideration because otherwise we get totally sidetracked. Everybody does. The world is so full of possibilities, papancha everywhere, so that one can't really refrain unless one deliberates. Our purpose and means directed towards the goal. If the answer is yes, then we go ahead. And then at the end, having done or said what we intended to do or say, we also investigate whether the purpose we had in mind has been accomplished. And if not, why not? Where was it lacking? <coughs> that is one explanation of clear comprehension. The one that is most useful in everyday life. But we can actually try it out here. Use mindfulness to become aware of what is going on within us or with the body. And then if we have intentions to check them against what is called clear comprehension. This is a kind of learning that slows one's reactions down. And what could be better than slowing down one's reactions because impulsively it's easy to make mistakes. When one isn't quite as impulsive but deliberates a little more, it is much easier to have a, a positive direction. The next thing that the Buddha talks about is contentment. And he talks about the contentment with one's daily needs. Now, most people in our society have far more than they need. The Buddha said one needs four things. One needs clothing to protect the body. One needs food to keep the body alive. One needs a shelter to protect 
the body and medicine to cure it when it's sick. Those are one's material needs. Obviously in our society we have um, at least ten dozen other things which we think we need. Some of that may be quite true. We might really need them. But half of them probably not. So it is uh, quite important to check out need against greed and see where that takes one. What does one really need? And then, as we check out what we really need, also to investigate, are we contented with our material situation? Are we grateful for it? Do we realize that having enough is a wonderful situation in this human life which is not possible for every human being on this globe. Are we actually remembering that there are equally many people who do not have enough? Neither enough to eat, nor enough medicine, nor enough clothing, nor enough of a roof over their heads. And we who have it, are we taking it for granted. Usually we do. In fact, we complain when it doesn't look ex- it doesn't quite taste the way it should. Or that we're used to something different so we don't want to make a change. We're easily tempted to complain instead of being easily tempted to be grateful for everything we have. When we look around us here, we have a beautiful nature around us, quite unique in its aspect. It's not to be found in many places at all this kind of forest. We have enough to eat. We certainly are sheltered from the weather. And Tony goes out of her way to buy medicines. (laughs) And everybody has brought enough clothing. Are we having any sort of contentment in the mind? Or is the mind grasping for something else that could be found somewhere else? Maybe where it's warmer or bigger rooms or different food or less meditation or (laughs) anything at all that the mind can look for. Instead, contentment. We've got everything. There's a nice story about the Buddha's words about being a human being. One time he was taking a walk 
with his monks uh, along the seashore. And he said to the monks, Monks, can you imagine that there is a blind turtle swimming in the oceans of the world? And that blind turtle comes up for air once every hundred years. There's also a wooden yoke swimming in the oceans of the world. Do you think, monks, that when that turtle comes up for air once every hundred years, that she could put her head through the wooden yoke? And the monk said, no, sir, that's impossible. That couldn't happen. And the Buddha said, it's not impossible. It's improbable, but not impossible. And he went on to say that same improbability reigns over being born as a human being with all one's senses and limbs intact and having the opportunity to hear the true Dhamma. Are we remembering anything like that to have contentment? Contentment is a necessary, essential ingredient for meditation. The less content the mind is, the less we meditate. Discontent, the opposite of contentment, is agitation. A discontented mind is, has to be agitated. Now, obviously, discontent arises because one thinks the meditation isn't working properly. Or one would like something far more to happen in meditation. Or whatever else one has thought about. Or become enlightened or something like that. Yeah, but that isn't going to happen if one first does not arouse contentment. It's totally useless to have this content in the mind. The meditation only gets worse and worse and the discontent becomes bigger and bigger. Anything we practice, be it good or bad, we become more efficient at. If we practice discontent, we become more efficient at discontent and it becomes an inner reality. I'm not content because and then we have any number of reasons, most of them totally foolish, none of them having anything to do with clothing, food, shelter, and medicine, only with other things outside of that, making the mind discontented. And the more we do that, the more we are discontented. On the other side, on the other hand, if we remember what the Buddha said about being born as a human being, what I've just said, and having this opportunity to hear the true Dhamma, which is rare in the world, and knowing that we have everything we need to sustain life, that's all that matters. We need everything to sustain life. Because as we sustain life, we can continue to practice. And then, have a mindful of gratitude for this excellent situation, 
for this wonderful opportunity, for this great boon, then we'll be able to meditate. And only then. The mind with discontent rushes from one place to the next trying to find something that will make it contented. Meditation will certainly bring about contentment. But first, there has to be that kind of contentment in the mind. The requisites, these four are called, and they hold true for everyone. Obviously, in our day and age, there are other things that we have in order to make a living and in order to have communication. But they are sort of extraneous. We could sustain life without all those things. So, please, have a contemplation of all the things you can be grateful for that exist in your life. And forget about the things that you're not content with. Everybody has some things in their lives that they're not content with. If we put our minds on, on them, then they grow and expand and become the only things that we know. But if we put our mind on that, which is really wonderful and helpful and which we can be satisfied with, then our contentment grows and expands. It's so simple. Everything we put our mind on, that's what we know. What we don't put our mind on, we don't know. We don't have to put our mind on the wrong things. It's amazing that we do. And yet, it's another one of the human foibles. Put our mind on those things which are bound to create unhappiness for us. And we know it. Before we actually do anything, we know already that that's bound to create unhappiness. And yet we do it. Maybe we could contemplate why. Why do we do such things? Why do we crave for this and that? Where we know it's not going to create any contentment, any happiness. We can have a look and see what answers we can come up with. The more we know what's going on within us, the easier it is to become calm. Because most of the things that we will find we can also discard. We realize quickly that they're not conducive to our own benefit. The uh, words of the Buddha concerning this um, contentment and how is one contented? One is satisfied with the robe to protect the body, with the food to satisfy the stomach, and having accepted sufficient, one goes on one's way. Just as a bird with wings flies hither and thither, burdened by nothing but its wings, so one is satisfied. In this way, one is contented. The lightness, the non-burden of the non craving for something else. The feeling that the way it is 
it's fine. And not only that, but the way it is, it's supposed to be. There are reasons for it the way it is. Maybe we don't know the reasons. Maybe we can't figure them out. What does it matter? It's just fine the way it is. Trying to push against the way it is creates dukkha. Brings about pain. Just like pushing against the door that's stuck. It's stuck. We can't open it. So we push and we push and eventually our hand hurts. We have to find a different door. Just leave that one that's stuck. It's all right the way it is. It's stuck. It's the same with all the things in our lives. It's fine the way they are. And not only that. They are the way they are because they're supposed to give us a learning situation. So if there's anything in our lives what we don't like, that we're not contented with, that we're not satisfied with, the first thing we can do is to see what we can learn from it. Not pushing against it, that I want it different. That's a surefire way of having dukkha. That's guaranteed to produce dukkha. But to find out, what am I learning from this? Am I learning anything? Well, if I'm not learning anything, what a waste of time. It's all happening, and I'm not learning anything. The whole of our lives are an adult education class. That's all they are. If we look at them in that way, then we are looking at them correctly. If we think that our lives are geared towards having pleasure, we're bound for displeasure. We're guaranteed to be disappointed. And most people are. Over and over again. But one day, maybe it will dawn on many people that this is an adult education class. And in this adult education class, all that topics are being addressed, every one of them. And everyone gets the one that is suitable for his class. It's got nothing to do with age like it does in our schools. It's got more to do with our inner development. We get confronted with that which we need at the time. And if we're not learning anything from it, not passing the exam, we're going to be put back into the same class again. We're going to get exactly the same lesson again until we have finally learned it. And then we can pass on to the next class. <laughs> and there is a possibility of graduating. <laughs> but we've got to go through the whole classes, just like we did in school or at university. We can't jump them. So if we look at all the things in our lives that are disliked by us, where we are discontented, the first question is, what am I learning? And the second question is, why am I not looking at that which brings real contentment? That which is so much more than so many people have on this globe. The gratitude for being in such a wonderful situation. With that, with gratitude and contentment, as 
a beginning for meditation, one has a much better chance of calming the mind. The mind will naturally revert to its state of not being discursive. The natural state of the mind is clear and translucent, calm and collected, non-attached, without any personal involvement, just is. And we can experience that because we've all got it. We all have the natural state of mind within us. We've just got to stop and drop all the other things that our minds do. Contentment and gratitude will be very helpful. And the Buddha addresses them after he has addressed guarding of the senses, mindfulness and clear comprehension, and then he addresses contentment. So all these together make it possible for us to have meditative states which bring higher states of consciousness. That's what the whole sutta is all about, higher states of consciousness. But only if we've already passed through the other classes. So this is why he's addressing these steps to make quite sure that Potapada knows without those steps there's not a chance of higher states of consciousness. It also seems that the Buddha has an idea that Potapada is just asking such a question without actually having experienced anything like that. Otherwise, he wouldn't go to the trouble of explaining every step on the way. But for us, it's very helpful because this way we get to know the whole of the progression, the graduated path. The Buddha called his teaching a graduated path. He compared it to the ocean. First, one wades into the ocean just with one's feet and they get wet. And then it goes deeper and deeper. Then one gets wet up to the knees, up to the shoulders, and eventually one can become totally immersed in the water, in the teaching. It's graduated. And so we have that here in order to practice it, not just to know. Guarding the senses, mindfulness and clear comprehension and contentment. Look at them all and see how they can help. They are also, for instance, contentment. A contemplation subject which you can use in your meditation time. Contemplation and meditation go hand in hand. If you don't use these, the meditation won't take off. So use that contentment and satisfaction or on the other hand your own discontentment as a contemplation subject in your meditation time. And also practice the guarding of the senses as you become aware of a reaction in the mind. As you become aware of the reaction to a sense contact, go back to the sense contact 
and see whether you can stop at the label, the perception, what it is. It's a very interesting undertaking because we don't take ourselves so much for granted then. Usually we take our own reactions for granted. They have to be that way because I am that way. But there's no reality to such a statement. Nothing has to be that way and nobody is any particular way. Everything is constantly moving and changing and so are we.